Are you ready for another round? So welcome to Rallon's Rant. Today I'm joined by Sean Murphy, who is a world champion of snooker back in 2005. He's also won several other ranking events, including the 2015 Masters. And amongst other things, Sean has his own podcast as well. And you may or may not have seen him on your television screens doing a bit of punditry as of late as well. So Sean, I know we've had a bit of technical issues, but thankfully and hopefully we're over them. But how's all with you today? All good. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, great. And um, yeah, you'd think in 2023 that uh, these things would be dead easy to sort out, wouldn't you? But uh, as you very nicely mentioned there, I have my own podcast, the 147 podcast, and uh, my co-host, Phil Seymour, he does all the tech. And um, I have seen uh, some of the stuff that goes into these recordings and editings and stuff. And do you know what? I just thank God I'm a snooker player. Because it just, it's just, it's above me. I don't know how it works, but uh, it's great to be here. Great to chat to you. And um, yeah, all good. Good stuff, good stuff. So usually I go on a spew now where I ask you about your childhood and maybe school experiences, but I'm going to slightly disregard that and focus on what you touched on there the fact that you're now a pro, very established snooker player, done it all, so to speak. But like, what was the eureka moment for you? Was this family orientated? Was it a friend? Like, what made you pick up a snooker cue in the first place? Yeah, it was by complete chance. Uh, I got a snooker table off Santa when you know when I would have been eight, uh, so it would have been um, the back end of nineteen ninety, uh, and um, you know I just came downstairs and there was this table in the house, and I picked the cue up and started knocking some balls around. And a bit like, you know, I'm big into my music. Um, I'm a massive, uh, you know, piano fan. You know, I'm a fan of anyone that plays piano. I play a little bit myself, but like I would be a big fan of your Elton John's, Billy Joel's and uh, Jules Holland. And um, I saw an interview with Jules Holland and he said something that stuck with me. It resonated because I had the same moment. He said that he was shown something on the piano as a boy Um and when he when he was shown how to play this particular riff, it was like a jazz riff, he said the chaos of the universe lined up and made sense to him. And, and in some way, I, I had the very same experience when I was shown how to play snooker um, and I realised I could manipulate that cue ball and I could apply spin to it and I was actually in control. When I was shown that, um, the chaos of my universe as an eight, nine-year-old suddenly slowed down a little bit and um you know it was completely life-changing for me that moment and that sounds very grand and that sounds very big yeah, and noble yeah. um but i do remember that quite vividly uh and uh it was it was the first thing that i'd ever really shown any real interest i think as any young boy you know i wanted to be a fighter pilot or a footballer or you know whatever it might have been a a guard or a fireman or a policeman, you know, whatever. But the moment I picked up this cue, there are there are there are pictures of me that my mum has in a fire in a in a in a folder somewhere of me on Stevens's day playing snooker, and I looked like a little snooker player. <laughs> and, and, and we'd had the we'd had the little four foot Steve Davis uh, branded snooker table in the house for twenty four hours just. Uh, and um, I look like a little snooker player. It's weird, and I, and I do look back at those pictures quite a lot because it's very special, and I have children of my yeah. own now, and um, my own children have just... They're just at that age where they're realising that what their daddy does is on TV. Um, they're just, you know... A couple of my recent games have coincided with bedtime or at the right time where they've been able to just watch a little. And I think, I think certainly my, my son, Harry, who's six, the eldest, he's just started to watch it and go, oh, what, gee, hang on a minute, that's quite interesting. And yeah. he, he, he's now keen on it. He, he now wants a little table himself. So, 
again, without being too Elton John-esque, it's uh, the circle of life, isn't it? We're on this circle of life. And, uh, yeah, it's um, it's a mad journey, all right. Mm, and well put. And the, the idea you said there about the, the miniature tables, I even can recall my dad, one of our Christmas presents from Santa was, a, I think it was a six-by-three-footer snooker table. And my dad had to struggle up the steps. He claimed it was probably the start of the end of his his health, but he struggled (laughs) up for about an hour to get that in. And obviously the next morning I come down the stairs and see the snooker table set up, not knowing the trials and tribulations that had gone on before. But you were saying there like that was the kind of the big moment for you to establish the keen interest in us. And I'd say if you're a snooker fan now, or even if you're an up and coming snooker player just a quick google or a quick kind of search around you realize there's loads of academies set up there's places all around the world that are dedicated towards snooker and in the past i know in say dublin if you hear ken darcy talk about it there's just one or two grimy halls that had about 15 tables very little light and a lot of drinking a lot of smoking and that's how you learned how to play snooker so back in say the 90s like becoming the the player that you are now obviously takes graft and a lot of work you can't just go and knock in your first one four seven on your first go but like how did you get to the level where you were good enough to be on the tour and like what did that look like in the 90s um very very close to how you just described it there i mean I, the, you know the most snooker players have the same kind of skin we're all averse to sunlight uh, we, we, we you know we're used to spending far too long inside and that's something that follows me around to this day. And my wife's always at me that I never want to go out and do anything, um, you know, in the park. Or we live very close to Marley Park in Dublin. And, you know, I'll do anything to avoid going there. You know, it's just because I don't like the natural light. That's yeah, all. Yeah. Um, like a vampire. Uh, yeah, no, I'm much, I'm much happier indoors under the, 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 the lights of a snooker table canopy. But um, I know you have to do these things. But, um yeah i think yeah very closely to how you described it was it was you know i I, i'm always wary of using the words like graft because um you know i'm very well aware certainly the village that i grew up in 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 england um you know was a very very hard working class area uh where men actually did graft you know very very hard and um you know the work i did whilst it was um time consuming and often you know i sacrificed a lot of other things that i could have done to do it um there was no sort of manual labor involved so um you know i'm i'm sort of you know um i'm aware of that uh, to try and make that sort of um the mark between the two but you know it was it was um the typical not going out when all my mates were going out um you know friends would ring the house back in the days you'd have to actually ring someone's house to speak to them you know, yeah. I mean, you know can we remember those days uh, you'd have to ring the landline uh, or make a prearranged that uh, we'll see you at the park at you know friday at seven or whatever um you know it was those days and you know my passion was snooker uh my my, my passions were you know becoming a better snooker player um, you know, I had the VHS videotapes of the greats and the Davises and the Hendries. And if snooker was on, I was watching it. You know, other than that, we'd be at a, we'd be at a junior tournament every weekend, an amateur tournament somewhere in the country, somewhere around the UK or Ireland. Um, and we were just on this merry-go-round for, you know, years and years and years until it became uh, the, the, that I was sort of on what they called the the old, it's called the Challenge Tour now, the Q Tour, I should say. It was called the UK Tour back then, and if you did well enough through this series of events, you 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 walked out of it with a tour card. Uh, and um, at fifteen, I did, and I was the youngest ever pro at that stage. That 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 has since been beaten, of course, as as things do. But at fifteen, I turned professional in nineteen ninety eight. I had my first season on the pro tour, and. Um, it was you know completely different to how it how it is now. There were hundreds of professional players um to, to to even get to within sight of a a top 16 player you'd have to win 5 6 7 maybe 8 matches in the pre qualifiers to even get to a final venue um so it was very different then to, to how it is now um not all for the worst i have to say you know there's a lot of things that even now you know i'm involved in um i'm so, i'm not involved in the running of the game anymore i i did sit on the board of 
the world governing body for a little while. I, I've walked away from that a little bit now, moved away from that. But, um, you know, there, there, there's a few things the game is sort of looking over its shoulder a little bit and sort of wondering if it could be a little bit better and kind of improve and learn some lessons from the past. But, um, you know, the, the game when I turned pro was, was slightly different. Uh, opportunities were probably a bit thinner on the ground than they are now. It's, it's a great time to turn pro. It's a great time to be getting into snooker. Um, and, um, yeah, as I say, I, I'm wary of using words like graft. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but but it was it was difficult. It cost a lot, both emotionally, financially. I'm very thankful that, you know, in the end it worked out. Yeah. Usually when you hear of world champions, world champions RFI, allude to maybe someone like uh, the best in the world, like a Ronnie O'Sullivan or one of the modern greats, you tend to see them establish themselves on the tour for multiple years, maybe pick up several ranking events, maybe runners up in a world championship final. And then two, three years later, they win the world championship. And you see that a lot with especially modern players. I think you might get some young, outrageously talented guys who might get to a final, maybe get overwhelmed. And then a year or two later, they come back and, you know, bury their demons, so to speak. But with yourself, as you said, in the late, 90s you qualified from the equivalent to like q school played in your first few ranking events and as you said it was a lot more challenging back then to get on tv than it perhaps is now especially with all the invitational events but several years in and i only really realized this from looking up that you come in in 2005 rock up to the crucible at 150 to one and you go and eventually lift the trophy but kind of rewinding from the point to where you win win the event at the very start you obviously qualify and you're like this is absolutely incredible the crucible looking back on it now and you've been back to the final and you've been as you said like whether it's commentating on finals whether you've taken part in finals was the young I don't know whether it was the brave or terrified Sean Murphy. Like, as you said, 17, 18 years on, can you reflect back and look back and say, Sean Murphy, that 150 to one long shot to win the world championship. Was that you at your most natural, your most fearless, your most terrified? Like what type of player were you two weeks before you obviously came on to become world champion? That's a great question. I think, um, you know, if I, if I'm honest, I think I look back at, at that player and, you know, um, I mean that 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 twenty two year old player was um, fearless, um, completely free of any, you know, battle scars. Um, had no real experience, no mileage on the clock, uh, and had no fear. You know, I, I I played shots during that championship that were. I mean, we 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 we've sort of moved away from using terms like right and wrong. Uh, haven't we in this day and age uh, in life and sport and all the rest of it? But 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 I played a lot of shots in that tournament that were wrong. There's no getting away yeah. from that, uh, and uh, they just happened to go in. You know, the, the balls went in the pockets. Um, they're not shots that I would uh, go for now, and and they're not shots that I've gone for since. Um, they were you know wrong, but they all went in, and. Uh, um, I think uh, that's the sort of ignorance of youth, isn't it, to some degree? Um, you know, I was 22, um, thought I knew everything. Uh, as it turned out, I knew absolutely nothing. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I just sort of snuck away with the biggest tournament in the world. Um, uh, took everyone by, by surprise. Um, now, I'd made my debut at the World Championships uh, three years prior to that in, in 2002, I'd won five qualifying matches to get there, lost to Stephen Hendry on my debut. I repeated that the following year with another five wins and got through to play in the first round against Ken Doherty. Uh, and uh, in 2004, didn't qualify. So I went back in 2005, you know, just trying to win a match at the Crucible. I'd been going to the Crucible since I was a nine-year-old boy in 1992. Um, that was the first time I'd gone there and watched as a fan. And I've been there almost every year since. Um, and in 2005, you know, I went there wanting to try and get a good draw. I just wanted to get a win there. Like, you know, I wanted to walk out there, shake someone's hand and get a win. Um, did not consider, you know, winning the tournament or what it would be like to win the tournament at all. It, you know, it didn't feature on the radar. Of course it didn't. Why would it? Um, but, you know, I, I, beat, I beat Chris Small in the first round, John Higgins... 
Steve Davis, Peter Ebden. And then I walked into Matthew Stevens in the final and, you know, just the match, it turned a little bit halfway through. There was a couple of key moments. And, you know, before you know where you are, we were 16 frames apiece, the best of three effectively for the world title. And uh, whilst I was clueless, I was gutsy. Uh, and, um, you know, I was, you know, as I say, I wasn't the all-round player that I've probably turned into now as a 40-year-old man. Like, I'm a different player now. But I, I, I was I was prepared to have a scrap, you know, as a 22-year-old yeah. kid. I'd have a scrap with you, like, you know, and uh, um, I made two good breaks to get over the line. I, I didn't trip over the line. I didn't fall over the line. I, I ran across it. And um, if I'm completely honest, I've spent the rest of my career trying to rediscover that ignorance, you know. <laughs> they say ignorance is bliss. Um, <laughs> it's a bit like when you play golf and you play a golf course for the first time and you get to stroke index one, the hardest hole on the course. You know, if you've never seen the hole before, you just take driver out and smack the ball down the middle. You don't think where yeah, the danger is. Yeah. Um, when you've played it a few times, you think, oh, I might, do you know, I'll hit five iron here and I'll hit seven iron in. You know, when you, when you don't know what the danger's lurking, you just take driver out. And that's what I was like at 22. I didn't know the pitfalls and dangers of being a professional snooker player, of being a winner of, 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 of what it meant. And so, do you know, I just went for everything. Um, I said a few things in the press. I wish I could take back. I was a bit gobby. I was a bit mouthy. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've really learnt my lessons. And as I say, as a 40-year-old man now, uh, you know, I look back at that part of my career very proudly, but but often through, uh, often through my fingers a little bit, you know? Yeah, yeah. like I'd like imagine, imagine most 40-year-olds most would do, looking back look at their back. career in any way, shape or form. And as you said there, and it, it got me thinking, you played like John Higgins, Davis, Peter Abden, like they're three outstanding, like just gritty match players that especially in the long format over a world championship, you don't necessarily want to draw them, especially when all three of them were not exactly like out of their prime. They were steely, tough competitors. But you then referenced that you were maybe playing some of the wrong shots technically, but they were going in. And I do find this interesting because you hear it all the time. And snooker is one of the few sports that, like you even look at Ronnie, you don't have to be in your 20s to be in your prime and be capable of winning events. And like even yourself in the press recently, you feel like you're very close to being, you know, a tip-top Sean Murphy form capable of winning tournaments. So how has your game evolved? And I consider this similar to like golfers. So Tiger Woods in his 20s had an aggressive backswing, could hit at 330. Now he's a bit more manipulative with his, his course management. But with yourself, you've always had, say, long potting ability. You've always had, you know, capabilities of break building. But how does a snooker player's journey change with 15, 20 years of, as you said, good times, bad times, self-doubt, big losses, big wins. How does that manifest itself and ultimately lead to where you are now, which is, as you said, a slightly different Sean Murphy than what you were 15, 20 years ago? I think one of the big differences, I think perhaps my generation of players were were maybe the last generation who were true shot makers. Uh, And... um, you know, you you referenced it at the at the, at the top there that that you know nowadays there's quite a lot of academies, there's quite a lot of uh, you know state of the art facilities to go to and practice your snooker as a young player, uh, chasing the dream. Um, you know, we didn't have that, and I think and I think to some degree it's it's almost sterilised the game just just a smidge, and it's made players like it's extended players like myself. We you know the much talked about class of '92 with O'Sullivan, Higgins, and Williams. Uh, and everyone sort of down the generational line since then. We we grew up having to play snooker to a very high level on any conditions that we were thrown at. Um, mm. and, and, and if I can liken that to golf, you know, you don't always get to go out and it's 28 degrees and there's no wind. And, and, and you know, you see, you see certainly the older golfers, you know, the, the, the pros from the 70s, 80s and 90s, they could just manipulate that ball and shape it, I think, just a little bit better than the modern player. Um, and I don't think it's I don't think it's too rude to say that you know perhaps in snooker it might be the same. You know we grew up playing on all sorts and you had to perform. It didn't matter didn't matter uh, that the cloth wasn't brand new and the balls were six years old and this that and the other. And 
Um, you still had to be able to play that shot that you know that the match demanded, and and I think perhaps my generation and maybe the one after it, you know, um, we were perhaps the last that 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 had to do that, and I, I think that's given us that's given us an ability to be able to um, fight our way through certain matches that the younger generation don't seem to have. Um, I think when you watch the snooker, as I mean, you know, as I've sort of moved into a little bit of commentary and and, and studio punditry work now, um, you know, I'm very aware of interviews that players give and stuff. And you know, often you'll see players that there's a, there's a very sort of general link, you know, very very general. As I say, this is a sweeping statement. I don't mean it. I don't mean it in that way. But often when players complain about playing conditions, there'll be players of a younger a younger age. And, yeah, and that's all yeah, they've that's, that's all they've known. You know, that that's all they've known. All they've known is perfection. All they've known is that brand new, beautiful cloth on beautiful tables with brand new sets of balls in very, very sterile conditions. They didn't grow up in the clubs like myself and Ken and Stephen Hendry and John Higgins and you know, all that that sort of generate. They didn't grow up in those places having to play on tables that hadn't been recovered for four years and sets of balls that had never seen a bit of fairy liquid and you know this that and the other you still had to play and and um often you had to play for very important prizes it could have been your tour card or it could have been access to a big championship or whatever it might have been um i hear young players now who are chasing their dream of being snooker professionals they turn down going to watch or going to play in amateur events uh, because that particular venue doesn't hold what we call star tables which are the the the, the brand of table we use in tournament play oh it's not star tables so I, you know i won't be going and you think goodness you know that's that's the that's the golfer who you know the golfer doesn't enter open qualifying because it's a bit windy yeah you, yeah. you know it's um it, it, it's an it's an attitude that's changed over the years. We we would have got down in the in the gutter to have a game of snooker when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah, and slugged uh, it out. And we would have slugged it out over the worst table in the country just for just for a fiver. You know, we would have been there all night. Um, whereas now you you can't drag these kids out unless they're playing on state of the art conditions. And I think that has that softened the game a little bit. But it's extended players like you know of my generation. It's extended our careers. Because uh, we can still mix it with the young kids. Yeah, and that's that's evident today, more so than ever. And one thing that a few people were looking to find out is snooker. It's not like, say, if we're going to keep referring back to golf. Golf, there can be conditions. There can be the heat, cold, whatever it may be, the course in front of you. With snooker, the... The table, as you said, it can sometimes be iffy, it can be a bit hard, it can be a bit, you know, slow, whatever it may be. But like what do you find are some whether it's yourself are like the best example I can give. If you're playing a Ronnie O'Sullivan, you're talking about an all round rounder who can crucify a five nil in an instant. Then you look at someone like Mark Selby, capable of great break building, but then also can drag you down into a safety battle that some people just simply do not want to get involved in. What are some of the, and this is for the sofa fans, the guys who struggle to make a 20 break, what are some of the things that maybe most people wouldn't realize that maybe gamesmanship or tactics are certain instances that maybe you could refer to when you played a certain player? What are some of the maybe in-game tactics that you come up with when you're playing against a certain player albeit a great safety player a break builder a very slow player a very quick a player who could be capable of losing the head if they go frame down do you have any examples of that or even through your even punditry where you've seen examples of that well i think one of the biggest things uh, certainly one of the best, biggest misconceptions about snooker is is playing conditions uh, and and the lack that you know the, those affect the players i think there's a there's a you know we, we we've used golf as an analogy already here but but um the 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 effect that the weather conditions have in golf is obvious isn't it you can see it you can see the wind and the rain in play and you can see that that green isn't level uh, and so it's it's kind of accepted that you know golfers have uh, they have a lot more to deal with than snooker players. But, you know, it just isn't true. And I could take you to play snooker in Shanghai where the humidity is at 85% 
uh, and the game of snooker becomes completely different than it is in London or in Dublin. It's, it's a completely different game. Uh, and shots that are possible to play at the Crucible Theatre, they're not possible to play in a theatre in Beijing. You can't play the same shots. And it's the same balls, the same type of cloth and the same table. But the, the, but the weather conditions and the humidity conditions um, affect the way the balls move around the table so much. To, to, uh, and it's only something you become aware of once you play the game to a certain level. Um, it makes such a massive difference. You never, you never see a tournament in the Far East where they break the century record for a week's play. Never happens because um, the balls just don't yield themselves in, in that regard. It's a bit like saying, you know, in golf, the scoring record for a particular week's play, you know, it just doesn't get beaten in certain weather conditions because they can't get the ball around it, you know, under par. And, and it's the same in snooker. So there's a bit of a misconception there. And um, one of the first things we check when we go abroad is, you know, the weather conditions, what the forecast is, how close to the coast you are, stuff like that, because that all plays a massive, massive role in how the tables are going to perform. We're not allowed onto the match tables to suss them out as they are, as professionals are in every other sport. There is no other professional sport where the athletes don't get opportunity to test the playing surface before they compete. Um, none that I can think of anyway. Uh, and um, it makes snooker quite tough in that regard because you're sort of learning on your feet. You're trying to adapt to playing conditions whilst competing. Uh, and it can cost you a frame or two before you find your feet and know where you are. And, of course, the higher up the rankings you go, you can't afford to give those players a couple of frames head start. Um, so so that's quite that's quite tough. In terms of gamesmanship, you know, there, there'd be quite a lot goes on backstage. I mean, we're all very friendly. Of course, we, you know, there's a tour of 128 players, you know, 40 or 50 staff, referees, tournament officials. If you think of an office with 200, 250 people in it, you're not going to get on with everyone. That's just yeah. normal. And and not all the players and staff, you know, not everybody gets on. Of course they don't. But but in the vast majority of cases, everybody gets on very, very well on the tour. Um, but there would be a little bit of gamesmanship backstage. They say all's fair in love and war, don't they? And I think, I think um, I've always been brought up to sort of think, you know, do you know, as long as you're not cheating, as long as you're not breaking any rules... Um, I think it's okay to have a bit of gamesmanship. And I, I've seen matches won and lost backstage. I've seen players crumble because somebody said something or they've read something or, you know, I won't, so I won't name him because it's, it's a little bit embarrassing, but I, <laughs> I witnessed a player um, with a very big lead against the defending champion at the Crucible one year and in the first round... And this player was physically sick backstage. Such were the nerves to go out and finish the job, and he couldn't finish. And he got and he got taken. Um, there'd be quite a lot of banter, you know. There'd be quite a lot of practical jokes going around. There's a few like no nos. Nobody touches anyone's cues. No one fiddles with anyone's outfits. Bow ties don't go missing. Shoes don't get laces taken out and stuff like that. But but the, apart from that, like everyone's fair game, and there'd be quite a lot of crack on tour. Uh, and uh, as I say, gamesmanship uh, does exist without question. It wouldn't go as far as the sledging that you see in the Ashes or the cricket or stuff like that. Uh, and I, and, I, and, I, and I, you know, it doesn't go that far, but um, it's definitely there. Uh, and uh, it's quite funny, to be fair. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. all is all fair in love and war, war is the expression, expression you used. used. And to touch on kind of where you are now, and I know the Crucible is around the corner. I know there's a few other events that need to be dealt with for all the pros before that. But I'd say once the Masters is finished, the top 20, 30 players, it's nearly like majors. And it's it's pretty much like, let's try peak for the Crucible, albeit it's a long format, but you want your game to be in really good nick for that ideally speaking or you want to be confident that you can do something and as i've said to you like you've experienced winning it you've recently gotten to a final as well um in 2019 i think or 2020 mm. the other hopefully um i remember during like covid and stuff it was all quite tough and now crowds back there's nearly a rejuvenated excitement but speaking about your game specifically i know in the past you've said 
I want to maybe get to world number one. That's an ambition of yours. I'm sure you'd love to be world champion again. Like as you get into your forties, most people might think, oh, it could be the end of my career. But as I've alluded to, in some cases, it can be the renaissance. Like what do you, like how do you view the next few years of your career? Do you still think I can get to number one? Do you still think this world championships around the corner any minute now? Or how are you kind of, kind of scaling your expectations on the tour right now? Uh, I think the older I've got, I've actually gone more specific with goals and objectives. Uh, I am a goal setter. Uh, you know, each year I set out my list of objectives for the season and uh, there's lots of those objectives that don't get met, as you can imagine. Um, and there's there's a couple of objectives I've had since turning pro that I've still not managed to complete. Being number one in the world rankings is one of them. Uh, I've never been to the top of the rankings and that's something I'd still love to achieve. Um, but I believe in being as super specific as you can with goals and, and, and trying to, you know, stretch yourself and, uh, testing yourself against everyone else. I think you should, you know, reach for the stars and, uh, if you hit the moon, then that's great. But, uh, you know, I, I have a very, very specific set of goals and targets, uh, some of which, you know, this season specifically I've, um, achieved already and some of them I'm on the way to achieving. Um, and I've had some good runs in some big events that I thought were going to turn into wins that didn't. You know, I've run into people just playing like superheroes this season. It's happened four times this season where I've just played somebody who was completely unbeatable on the night. There's nothing I could have done, you know, bar, bar physically restraining them in their chair. <laughs> um, I couldn't have done anything about it. And, of course, that's the, that's the unique thing about snooker, and it's often what people overlook. If me and you go for a game of snooker now, when you step to the table, I can do nothing about it. And it's very, there's very few other sports like that. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, in golf, we've mentioned golf several times. It's one of my biggest passions. Anyone, I've done a bit of coaching over my career and I always revert back to golf because it's, it's what I know best outside of snooker. But um, in golf, if me and you go and play golf now, you hit your ball and I hit mine. It doesn't affect each other at all. What you what you do to your ball and your scorecard makes no difference to me. I'll find my ball and I'll hit it again. In darts, you'll throw your three darts, I'll throw my three, and in 30 seconds I get to throw my three again. Um, I don't like comparing single player sports to team sports because I think there's a that's like you know a bit of a pointless exercise. But in single player sports, there are very few like snooker where once you've played your shot. That could be your last shot. Uh, and you've got absolutely, you, you know, you can do nothing about it. Um, and, you know, when you're setting these targets for yourself and these goals and these outlooks for your careers and seasons and weeks and tournaments, you have to bear that in mind. When I went to the UK Championships before Christmas, I knew I was playing really good stuff. And I walked into Jack Lazowski in the, a gala session Friday night live on BBC and I sat in my chair whilst he proceeded to play some of the best snooker I've ever seen. I had two scoring visits to the table. I made a 67 break to force a tie in the first frame. And I made a 111 break in the fifth frame or the sixth frame. And apart from that, I spent the night sat in my chair. That happened again in the Scottish Open against Scott Donaldson. The same happened in the English. And it was repeated at the Masters against Stuart Bingham where against all of those it wouldn't a, a nuclear warhead could have gone off in the crowd and it wouldn't have made any difference to the outcome it it was ridiculous um and i never forget when i paired up with a, an old coach of mine he was sort of a half a technical coach half a mental coach and he said one of the things you have to realize in snooker is you're not in control of whether you win or not and I, and I remember saying that, 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 was, that was really hard for me to take in. But he was right. All yeah. I'm actually in control of is my preparation and my decisions that I make in the game. I'm, you know, and if I perform to a high level, that's great. But in snooker, that doesn't guarantee you the W. Um, and if your opponent plays to their very, very best, there's, there's very little you can do about it. So I think as you get older... You, you learn to be a little bit more accepting of these things that you're not in control of. Uh, I've certainly become better at that as a snooker player over the years. 
there's lots goes on out there that I can do nothing about. Um, all I'm really in control of is setting my targets, um, my preparation, my practice, and making sure I turn out to each match as well prepared as I can possibly be. And if that leads to my, you know, at the end of the week, if I'm the one stood there having the pictures taken with the trophy, then so be it. Um, that hasn't happened yet this season. Uh, and I'm hoping that there's a, there's still a few events before now in the World Championship. But as you correctly said, once once the Masters is done and dusted, everyone has that one eye on the World Championship. Um, I've been to four finals of the World Championship at the Crucible. I've managed to take the trophy home once, which again links back to what I said earlier about the ignorance of youth. You know, at 22, yeah, yeah. I had none of the battle scars I have now. Uh, and I walked away with the trophy. Um, you know, it's a shame we can't transport that 22 you clueless Sean Murphy into the modern age because he, he might still win. Um, but uh, no, I, I, I feel that, you know, as in a, in, a, in a roundabout way, you know, my, um, my game is certainly as good as, as it's ever been. You know, I'm, I'm definitely as good a player as I've ever been. Uh, there's no question about that. The problem I've got is so is everyone else. Everyone yeah, else is yeah. really good as well and getting better. And um, I suppose that's the evolution of sport, isn't it? Okay, and well said. One thing I want to focus on a little bit now and um, before we wrap this up is something that is quite, I think, important in, in snooker at the moment, whether it's you look at the current world champion, Ronnie O'Sullivan, he's had his his like demons, so to speak, and he said how taking a in a weird way in his own brain how it works as in like he takes a step back from snooker he's not stressing as much over it gives him the freedom the other side of that is someone like say mark selby who's been very open about his his struggles and you've seen dips in form with him and with yourself as well you've said that there's been times where you know you've you've struggled whether it's confidence whether you've even gone on record and said stuff regarding like your weight one thing I want to just ask generally is obviously being a, a public figure where you've got supporters, you've got social media now, how tough is it to maintain such a high level, which you have now for 20 plus years, while, as I said, there's so many distractions, whether it's social media, whether it's your own image of yourself, like how have you found that whole experience yourself with regards to being able to separate the maybe the negative energy that other people might bring to you, your own head might bring to you. And then, as I said, how that coincides with being a, a professional, basically sports person. Yeah, it's a great question. And, it, and it's very, very relevant. I think, um, you know, I chat to a lot of players who've, you know, come from a different generation. And of course, they didn't have any of those uh, distractions, if that's the word we want to use, or they, 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 you know, that... You know, social media didn't exist when Stephen Hendry won the last of his world championships, and 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 uh, you know, um, uh, it's a different world, isn't it? And, it? and it's a world that's evolving. You know, often you lose a grandparent, and you think, goodness, you know, the changes that that grandmother must have seen through her life. You know, and you know, intercontinental flight and landing on the moon, and technology, and TVs, and mobile phones, and you know, it's no wonder they struggle every now and again, is it? And uh, to, to, to some degree, we've been the same in snooker. You know, when I took up snooker, um, there were none of these outside distractions and influences and you know the public didn't really get to interact with you positively or negatively uh, a, an interview was done with a journalist whilst they wrote it down on a piece of paper uh, and, and, and at an event if you wanted to speak to your wife you go to the phone box in the hotel and make a call that's that's not the way of the world anymore uh, no, and no. Um, the minute I turn my phone on in the morning uh, or check my phone because nobody turns their phone off uh, the minute I check my phone, you are reachable, aren't you? You are contactable. Uh, and uh, if somebody tweets me enough or slips into my DMs or comes on Instagram or wherever they might find me, you can be found and you can be hounded. Um, and I've had plenty of that over the years. And there's been a few, you know, fairly obvious reasons why and you know people have been very cruel over the years about you know the way I looked or uh, this that and the other and that led to you know 
you know that that sort of capitalized itself last year where you know I took the step to have surgery to try and you know make myself a better better version of myself for lots of different reasons not because I felt bullied into it by social media at all mm. but um it was nice to just you know shut all them people up <laughs> I have to be honest it was it was nice um and uh, you know at least now when I lose a match it's not cuz you know I'm too fat uh, which is you know a reason that I was given on a daily basis by people who wouldn't dare say that to your face. Yeah. Um, whenever, whenever I see somebody in the spotlight, um, every now and again, they'll screenshot a message they've been sent or they'll out somebody on social media. There's always a massive public outcry. And I'm always, I'm always reminded that that person's probably receiving that type of message multiple times a day. Uh, and at that particular moment, they've just decided enough's enough to out that one particular person. My inbox is full of people saying horrible, nasty things to me on a daily basis. Um, but that is the world we've 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 all been a party to, and, and that's the world that's now evolved, isn't it? And of course, you give people a Twitter account; it it's as if you've you know you've given them that platform. Um, uh, and just because you know we have freedom of expression and freedom of opinion, that doesn't make your opinion correct, uh, of course. Um, and um, you know, it's a real. It's been a very, very difficult balance to find over the years. I have to say, um, between trying to defend yourself, being want, wanting to be right, uh, uh, the injustice of having to face things that you know are false there have been so many false things said and written about me over the years and lots of stories about me that i know people believe to this day that simply aren't true um but you can't fight every battle you have to just let some of them go at some stage you know i might write a book or i'll do something where i get my opportunity to tell my side of these stories these stories that have followed me around for the best part of 20 years, some of them extremely vicious in their falsehoods. Um, I'll get my chance to put them right at some stage. Um, and, and that day's coming very soon. But I think the flip side of all of this negativity is that it's, it's given an opportunity for people out there. And these are the majority, I have to say as well, people who are very kind and, and, and the positive and, and, and just want you to do well. And, and they, you know, I get messages also on a daily basis of people who thank me for the entertainment that myself and my fellow professionals have brought to their lives. Um, they loved watching Tournament X or whatever it might be. And you were part of that. And my inbox is vastly more populated by people getting in touch to talk about the positivity that you've helped bring to their life. Um, it is just the negative ones that you remember. And I think that's something that everybody listening to this will, will resonate with. You know, if you could, you could have 150 comments in a, in a day, you remember the one nasty one. That's just, I think yeah, we're all yeah. built that way. Um, but, but, but social media has, it has changed sport. Um, you know, th those degrees of separation we were all taught about at school, they're now like one, aren't they? You can reach out and contact anybody uh, uh, within one or two degrees of separation these days. Uh, and I think that's that's got its plus points uh, and negative points. But I must say, as I say, I don't want this to be, you know, uh, uh, get the violins out. The vast majority of people I run into on social media are fabulous, lovely people who love snooker and they've then they support everyone playing it and um you know I'm, I'm i'm very thankful for the support i've received uh, i always feel like i get a good cheer when i walk out and play it's always nice to play where you feel appreciated uh, and uh, the snooker family the snooker fraternity which i'm pleased to be part of um you know is a wonderful place to be yeah, yeah, and well said. Well said. And, it, and it is strange, strange how, how in all of life you tend to remember, like me as a former rugby player, I always remember the big final loss as opposed to the times I won trophies. Like, and it is—it's just weird how the mind sometimes works that way. But uh, listen, I appreciate your honesty in, in dealing with that that topic. And you mentioned there, it'd be nearly naive of me to have you on and not discuss what most people and the big elephant in the room is discussing right now where obviously there's investigations taking place over match fixing 
And back in my youth, I remember the big story about Stephen Lee, who was still serving his band for match fixing. And it, it happens it happens everywhere. Like you look at Juventus, they've just been docked fifteen points due to accountancy issues. Like you might you might get problems in every sport, but in snooker, it's obviously it's kind of rocked it to its core, and rightfully so, I suppose. And everyone's got an opinion on it. Some people might say good riddance. Some people might be a bit more sympathetic, saying they might need more support. We need to get the full details. And you being a, a pro for such a long time and seeing all the great and all the bad snookers got to throw at you for a, a very extensive period of time. Like how do you how you do you as a an elite player deal with this type of news, knowing that you face these people, some of these results may have affected you and, you know, your livelihood, so to speak. Like how does one reflect on that when you're actually involved in the sport itself? Yeah, it's very difficult to to remain uh, level headed in 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 those types of situations, uh, and I think it's it's created a very emotive atmosphere on the tour. Um, and I certainly wouldn't speak for everyone on the the snooker circuit, but you know, um, uh, it, it's been a very dark period. And, and as you correctly say, it's rocked the game to its core. It's probably the biggest scandal that snooker has ever faced. Um, and Alex Higgins isn't there you know, to be part of it, you know, he, he, he was a part of a lot of the others. Um, who said there were no characters left in the game? Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> uh, no, I, but you know, in all seriousness, um, there are 10 players uh, who've been charged. They were suspended. They've been charged with allegations of, of match fixing. Uh, and, um, you know, I would like to make the point that these 10 players uh, have been alleged uh, to have done these things. They they have absolutely every right to a fair hearing, to a fair trial. And I still hold on to the hope, although it's 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 the the, the flame is going out. Um, I'm still trying to hold on to the hope that these players will clear their names uh, and there'll be that pieces of information come to come to the forefront and that we can all shake hands and move on. If these players or if any of these players are found guilty I, I, I always think, you know, when you're dealing with these really complicated matters, I just think you try and simplify it. For me, I, you know, my, my view on this is very simple. If you're found guilty of cheating, your career in professional sport is over. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the good thing about snooker, one of the, you know, no, no, nobody comes out of these situations covered in glory. Uh, no, no one's no one's doing any celebration laps about what's gone on. It's been an, a, a terrible time for the game. Um, but one of the best things that's happened is that the way the WPBSA, our, our members, you know, professional body, have have conducted themselves um, and 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 made this such a public inquiry, almost. Um, I think is beyond reproach. I think they've done everything, you know, to the letter of the law, perfectly as they should have done. It, it would have been. Very easy to have kept this in house uh, and to have not made it so public. It was it was been tabloid news in the UK and Ireland for the for for months. Um, but I think that shows the level that the governing body are willing to go to to create transparency uh, and and to get rid of the darkness. You know, you have to flood it with light, uh, and that's and that's what the games trying to do but i go back to my you know i know overly simplistic approach which is if if any of these players are found guilty of cheating i think their careers as professional snooker players ought to be over um and as the game moves into this now independent tribunal it moves into an independent panel that that look at all these players cases it's now nothing to do with uh, world snooker tour or uh, the WPBSA as to what punishments are dished out. This isn't going to be Jason Ferguson's decision on on how long mm. he thinks player A should be banned. An independent panel is going to look at these cases uh, as they've looked at all previous cases in the past. You mentioned Stephen Lee yourself. Uh, an independent panel found him guilty uh, and banned him for 12 years. Um I think that's another good thing about snooker. This isn't snooker players or former snooker players punishing snooker players. This is an independent tribunal uh, of of people who know the law, uh, are experts in sport, 
uh, and they will look over these cases and they will decide what, if any, punishments should be given out. But they, they, you know, I called for life bans a month or two ago. I, I have had it explained to me why a life ban can't really be given for legal reasons. But they do have it within their power to give out bans that are, in effect, life uh, career ending. And um, that would be what I would be campaigning for. I don't think we've any room for cheats. You played professional sport, you're, you know, yourself, you know what it's like. You know, I, I want to have a fair fight with someone. I want to have yeah, a go of a yeah. fair match. And if you beat me, I'll shake your hand at the end of the match and we'll go for a drink. You beat me fair and square. Fair, fair play. Mark Allen uh, from Northern Ireland, he and I, he's one of my best friends on the tour. And we've had some absolute ding-dongs over our career. Um, but you know what? We've, there's never been any question that one of us isn't giving 100%, that one of us isn't absolutely trying to murder the other one. And at the end of all our games, we shake hands, we embrace, and we wish each other the best. And then we go for a pint because you've had a fair scrap. Uh, and that's what people want to watch. That's what sport's about. That is what sport is all about. If you lose the trust of the public, if the public don't believe what they're watching is genuine, they'll watch something else. Because we live in a world of multimedia. You can, I've got a thousand channels at my house. Um, this isn't the glory days of the 80s and the 85 World Final where 18 and a half million people watch BBC Two till quarter to one in the morning. They only had four TV channels back in 1985. We've got so much choice these days. Um, if you lose the trust of the public, you lose everything. And I think it's important that you know if and when these players are found guilty, and it's still an if, if they are found guilty, I think it's important that the powers that be, whoever makes these decisions, sends out a very strong message to the public that we are trying our best to clean this mess up, but also to younger players and to any players out there who are thinking about it, any players who are out there thinking that they're cleverer than the integrity units, that they're cleverer than the algorithms that work for the gaming commission that flag these irregular betting patterns, they think they can outsmart these algorithms. Just leave it. Just don't do it. Keep your money in your account. Have a bet on something else. Don't bet on snooker. As a professional snooker player, you are not allowed to gamble on snooker matches. Full stop. That cannot be any clearer. Whether you're in it, not. Whether you're playing in the tournament or not. Whether you're backing yourself to win, lose, part of an accumulator or anything. You are not allowed to do it. So don't do it. I think it's very important that the game sends that message out. And um, I look forward to this being behind us as quickly as possible. Yeah. yeah. Well said. Well said. said. And And the the last thing I do with these podcasts is I tend to do just a quick fire round. Let everyone go home with smiles on their faces, if possible. (laughs) And yeah, so I will rock out a few of these. Nothing too challenging. But as quick as you can, but what okay. always happens is a lot of people get confused and they take five minutes to come up with an answer, which is acceptable in some circumstances. But if you can be as brief as possible, fantastic. But if it needs explanation, go ahead. But okay. I will start off with question one, which is what is the Mount Rushmore of your profession? The Mount for I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Yeah, the the Mount Rushmore of the profession, I think, would be our what we call our triple crown. Um, you know, in golf, they've the majors. In tennis, they've the, the the grand slam. You know, in snooker, it's the triple crown, and they're the events that are on BBC. They are the the UK Championship, the Masters, and the World Championship. And as we sit here today, there are only eleven players in history since the game was created in nineteen twenty seven as a professional sport that have won all three of those events. So, you know, scaling your Mount Everest or our Mount Rushmore, the Triple Crown set is is what we're all searching for. Fair. And, and you're one of them, of 11. I don't like to mention it. I don't like to mention it too much. <laughs> I was waiting for it, but I thought I'd mention it rather than leave it be unknown. <laughs> 
So, so next question is, what does the word success mean to you? I think the word success uh, is interchangeable. I think it's meant different things to me at different times of my life. Um, I think as a young man, uh, I would have been fairly, you know, um, uh, committed to, to winning the world title as a young man uh, and the possible, you know, rewards that came with that. I had a belief that, you know, winning that championship would bring me, you know, fortune and fame and some nice attributes and material things. And of course, as you get older, you realise how sort of unimportant those things are. Um, uh, uh, not to be disregarded, of course, it's nice to have nice things. But you know, when I when I when I see the look on my son or my daughter's face, uh, and they're happy and healthy, and um, you know, we shut the door at night and lock the door and put the fire on. Um, for me, success is. Uh, sitting there knowing my children are well, my wife's well, and uh, there's wood to put on the fire. Yeah, yeah. Well, said. well said. Next one Next is, is, it can be big or small, but tell me a secret of yours. Oh, goodness. Uh, a secret of mine. Uh, oh, dear. Oof. Uh, oh, dear me, I'm struggling with that. <laughs> Uh, do you know? Do you know the problem with me is I'm so honest, <laughs> uh, and as and as you will have always, as you will have realised, I give such in depth answers. I, 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 you know, my, you know, we, you've asked me three questions tonight, and we've just run away with ourselves. Um, uh, I give such in depth, honest answers. I, I don't really have many skeletons uh, in, in in the closet. Um, I, I suppose without being too cliche, I suppose a secret that I've I've sort of never really told anybody is that um you know when I took up this journey of snooker being a snooker player I never really thought it was going to work I never really believed it um people ask you all the time did you always know you were going to be a snooker you know did you always know you'd be world champion did you know and you're like yeah yeah no I practiced all my life I tried I didn't really know there were so many moments of doubt and self-doubt questioning and have I done the right? You know, I left school as a 13-year-old boy. I had no qualifications, nothing. Um, there were so many times I questioned it, so many times I thought I'd made a wrong, the, the wrong turn. But uh, thankfully, um, you know, the stars aligned and, um, yeah, looks like I made the right choice. Here, here to that. that. And um, next one next is, one what is your biggest phobia? Mine is spiders are flying. Oh, well. I'll give you an example. Example. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, you didn't say snakes, so I'm going to throw <laughs> snakes in there. Uh, uh, I had a terrible situation happen to me at an exhibition there a few months ago where uh, somebody walked past me. And of course, as a snooker player, your snooker cue is it. You know, if something happens to yeah, my snooker yeah. cue, like it's game over, it's night over. I was doing an exhibition in Manchester. Everyone's paid money to come and watch me do a show. It's my show, so it's like trick shots and exhibition-style snooker and jokes and this, that, and the other. And as somebody's walked past me, whilst the referee was re-racking the frame for frame four or five of the night, uh, somebody barged past me and knocked into my elbow, and my hand slipped up my cue and knocked the tip of my cue off. And it landed on the floor. And that's never happened in 20 years. <laughs> and I was like, right, uh... Well, that's the night over, isn't it? That's, that's <laughs> the night finished now. Um, right then. Uh, so we took an early break. We managed to get the tip back on the queue and uh, uh, the night was a success in the end. But any damage to my queue would be a bit of a phobia. Uh, just touch on it very, very briefly. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, the plane thing. My, my podcast uh, co-host and I have agreed to jump out of a plane oh, wow. uh, for, oh, wow. for charity uh, towards the back end of March. And we are absolutely bricking it. Yeah, you know, these you, things, <laughs> you know these these things that you just agreed to. You go, how 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 have we agreed yeah. to do this? And I said to him recently, Phil uh, Phil Seymour. I said, Phil, like we can't get out of this. You know, we, 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 this is something we've agreed to now. This isn't like some, uh, yeah, I'll meet you for a drink next week. And if you, if it goes wrong, then it doesn't happen. We've actually agreed to jump out of this aircraft. Oh, and yeah. not only, not, it's not like just a start. I think yeah, it's tandem. We are doing it with someone, but like, it's not a seven or an 8,000 foot jump. 
It's a 15,000 feet jump. What are we doing? What, like, what's so phobias? I'm, I'm, I'm throwing in parachute jumps into the <laughs> phobia category. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> well, I look forward to seeing that on some sort of social media platform in a couple that of weeks' makes time. One of us. and what is next so the most overrated band of all time um well it pains me to say this um it pains me to say this because this was the first cd that i ever bought Um, but i was there for girl power i i witnessed it uh and of course, none of these singers, if we can use the terms, like if we can use the term <laughs> singer, um, if we're allowed to use that term, uh, as a very amateur musician myself, but none of these singers played any instruments to my knowledge. They weren't really bands. Like when we talk about bands, I'm talking about Queen, ACDC, The Beatles, you know, like actual yeah, musicians. Yeah. I think the most overrated band has to be, I'm sorry to say it, I was there, I enjoyed it. Um, but it would have to be the Spice Girls. Like, they were a bit rubbish looking back. You know, they weren't actually yeah. any good, were they? You know, who did they think they are? Yeah, well, well living <laughs> off the success still. There might be a That was a pun, by the way. That was a, but that was a pun. Who do they think? That was a, who do they think they are? That was a pun. It's gone over people's heads. It was there nonetheless. It went over mine. It's been a long day. <laughs> so... Second last one is what is worse? Hoovering the house, changing your bed sheets, or emptying the dishwasher. Okay, well, listen, as a as a father of two, uh, and uh, you know, anyone who's 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 involved in that type of world, I'd say you're all right at all three of those. Um Surely my morning where you're like, oh yeah. Um <laughs> I think the three out of the three, it's changing the bed sheets. I don't know about you, but I can never, I always get the fitted sheet wrong first time around. It's never the right way around. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm actually going to put a mark on it. <laughs> Cause I try and fit it to our bed. I just get it wrong every single time. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You know, I'd love to blame it that, that Harry is jumping on the bed whilst I'm trying to do it or whatever it might be but i put the corner on then i put as my mother taught me i put one corner on and then i do the opposite corner uh and from then on it it should fit itself it doesn't matter where i start i get the fitted sheet wrong and then i have to turn it around uh i'm an expert hooverer so i don't mind doing the hoovering and every morning without fair fair uh, without fail before i've put the kettle on i've emptied the dishwasher so i would have two of those things i don't mind doing those things because uh, it means my wife has to make breakfast with the kids whilst I'm emptying the dishwasher. It's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a shrewd move on my behalf, actually. Uh, a tip to all you husbands out there, just do the dishwasher, then you don't have to do the Weetabix. Um, yeah, so that's yeah. grand. Uh, but yeah, the fitted sheet, that could go for me. I wouldn't change my life if I never saw one again. <laughs> well said. And Life Tips 101 with Sean, Ori, <laughs> make sure you go to the dishwasher so you don't have to get Cocoa Pops all over your face. And the last one is, if you could ask yourself, you're going to have to put yourself in my shoes for a very brief period, but if you could ask yourself one question today that I haven't, what would you ask yourself? Uh, Yeah, I suppose I would ask myself, you know, if we just go back in time to 2015 uh, when I had the run to the world final and lost to Stuart Bingham, I'd probably ask myself, what were you thinking uh, with the red suit and the gold waistcoat? Uh, did you not know you would look like Iron Man slash an <laughs> idiot? <clears throat> um, that would probably be question number one. Um, I, I have had, you know, in fairness, I have had the odd out there suit design. Um, I'm currently rocking some very sparkly suits. Uh, yeah, which I saw have gone, them, I think, a week ago. Yeah, they've got, they've got more than one foot in the Strictly Come Dancing, uh, Dancing with the Stars bracket, uh, which, you know, I've just embraced my love of all things Twinkly. As I've turned 40, I've just decided to go with it. I like it. Uh, A bit of a magpie. And I've always kind of shied away with it. So I'm just going with it now. Uh, But yeah, 
uh, I would, you know, strongly look back. 2015, that red suit. What was that? That was a mistake. I'm happy to admit it. I'll own it. It was a mistake. I regret it. Well said, well said. Well, that is a wrap, Sean. I want to thank you, obviously, for overcoming these, uh, I don't know, what you'd call them, device issues that caused us to delay this a fraction. But thanks for speaking so honestly and also recalling some of your earliest days, whether it's around Christmas or in dark halls, making 50-plus breaks and all the way up into current day, uh, Sean, whether it's on or off the table. And I just want to say best of luck with the next few weeks. I know it's kind of crunch time as a snooker player, whether it's the current shootout or the one or two tournaments on its way, but then ultimately leading towards the Crucible. Let's let's hope that 2005 isn't a standalone thing and we could potentially be saying 2023 was the year Sean went back to the old Sean that just went for all the wrong shots, but they went in, but we, we shall see. But uh, no, listen, thanks again for coming on and I do appreciate your time. I know. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.